And now we're back with our guests, Tom and Bodhi from Homie and the Dude. And some of you may know them already because they've been on the show already. But yeah, first things first, how have you been and how does it feel to be the first returning guest of the show? Oh, shit. Oh, snap. I didn't know we were the first returning guest. Uh, first of all, thank you for having us. Second of all, how, how are we doing? We're, we're all right, you know, slugging through life, dragging our knuckles against the ground as the <laughs> Neanderthals that we are. And uh, just, just making our way through life. How does it feel to be the first returning guest? Pretty awesome. That's awesome. That's super sick. I didn't know that. You you saved that for the for the introduction. I, I feel kind of yeah. kind of honored. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, massive honor. I feel, feel very blessed and thankful. I mean, here's the thing. Like I said to you guys on the first podcast, I listen to your guys' stuff because as a DM, I'm constantly trying to find avenues to learn and grow and get better. Mm -hmm. And I find that oftentimes you guys pick at something from all the angles. You look at it from many different angles and it often shines light on things in ways that I don't often and think about and I think that's one of the reasons why I love the show so yeah I mean being being a returning guest feels like supreme honor yeah it feels awesome <laughs> it's honestly one of the reasons why we wanted you guys to be returning guests on our show because you guys have such unique and interesting perspectives for Nielsen myself as well mm -hmm. like hearing from you guys and how you process things how you um, understand and, and see these things that TTRPGs that are TTRPG related is just unique and new to us as well like with most of our guests but especially for you guys you're also a duel so you also have these internal discussions obviously right you have someone to bounce back ideas from and that's just really good of a dynamic to see especially as another dynamic duel <laughs> yeah, i appreciate that yeah we, we we definitely try and utilize that having both of us and, and don't get me wrong we butt heads yeah. a lot but we also i think that's one of the reasons why we work is because we do come at things from very different perspectives in a, in, in it's a, a good time it's too. a good balance yeah. we, Bodhi definitely covers certain bases whether it's creatively or in the business and I seem to have a, a pretty good complement of other things and then when you put it together it, it's a nice package it's a nice presentation it yeah. seems to have worked that way hasn't it yeah but there's some bits for sure like let's not paint it more rosy <laughs> than it appears we, we we certainly have moments where we're quite heated in yeah. some of the whether it's business decisions or creative mm -hmm. decisions or whatever and Definitely. through that you know we we, we just want to come up with the right answer going forward the best answer for the business the best answer creatively you know, that's lots of, of passion. Yeah, I think is what it is. It's just lots of passion. Yeah. yeah. One of the most important things that I've recently heard from uh, for TTRPG creators and general business advice, for example, from one of our peers, I don't know who it was exactly. I think it was live from the apocalypse. Very cool people. But they said that the best thing you can do to create a TTRPG project, be it Kickstarters, be it actual plays, be it live streams, be it supplements, whatever, is to work with people that will disagree with you and that are ready to disagree and not people that I have a different opinion but let's just go with yours is also not great having people that where both sides or every side wants to get their point across and you could obviously at the end can compromise it's just way better because then you can get all the angles yeah if yeah. Nielsen and I would, would agree on everything, right? we discuss a few things before the episodes where we don't necessarily agree on stuff, where in the episodes we try to just hit point after point after point, if we would only take my opinion or only his opinion, it wouldn't lead to actually shining that on every topic in the ways we do or we, the ways we try to, because we would just have one perspective. And what is one perspective worth? Nothing. It's just mm. a flat thing. Yeah. 
It's, it's just flat, right? It's several perspectives are worth way more than just one. Mm. Mm. I fully agree with that. I think it comes down to feedback. And I mm. think, you know, feedback's such a big thing, you know, for any person, whether you be, whether it be in a relationship, you know, with a significant other, whether it be, you know, business wise, uh, whether it be, you know, playtesting something, you know, whatever it might be, you need that feedback so that you can then progress and move forward. There's a reason why, like I say this all the time, there's a reason why if you look at like the billionaires that, you know, the public billionaires in our world, there's a reason why a lot of them are like assholes. And it's because they just have yes men around them, you know, being like, yeah, yeah, Elon, do it. Like, yeah, buddy. And it's just like, no one's going, hey, that's a shitty idea, dude. Like, don't make that flamethrower. That doesn't make a shitty idea, dude. Like, I feel like that's one of the big things. And for a lot of people, whatever aspect in your life, it's always important to get feedback because that's the only way you will progress and learn and evaluate and things like that. So super important. Yeah, we, we are seeing with Twitter, everyone that disagrees with Elon Musk just gets fired. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> just wants these yes men, but obviously with the only the yes men, he cannot evolve Twitter further. He doesn't care actually, probably, but right, you need people that disagree with you. You need people that will tell you what is wrong and what is right, because otherwise you will not learn. Mm. Yeah, as far as like creative conversations or discussions or feedback, it's important that the people that are participating in that are also aware of their egos so Mm. it's you know it's important to bash out ideas as long as you're both or the group is moving toward the best idea and not defending their point because they want to be right or they feel better when they're right and that's you know you can break you can break up a group if you have someone that is just disruptive and they just want to be right versus everyone working toward and having disagreements and sometimes heated disagreements about the direction the best direction to go in yeah so that's yeah that's something that's super super important when you're evaluating your group and feedback and things like that from from our perspective i'd agree with that that's just good player advice as well right if you're playing in the tgrpg group if you're part of the party obviously make your suggestions go with your plan but drive forward with the party mm. if you're disagreeing with everything and only blocking every idea you're not gonna be helpful mm. no but if you work together to implement all the ideas that's the best thing you can do for sure yeah there's the what's the, one of our golden rules is always find a way eventually it might not be initial but eventually find a way to say yes. Your character may initially say no, um, but as just being aware of the game, if you persist with that, if you're a blocker, then uh, that's not fun for anyone, including yourself. Mm. You're blocking possibilities, opportunities to really, you know, explore a creative opportunity. And so, yeah, that's one of ours is always find a way to eventually say yes. Yeah, especially for streaming. Yeah. 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 And I mean, in the end, the more weird shit you can do in a TTRPG, the better, right? Agreed. Yeah. (laughs) Just at least from my personal experience. The more fucked up a plan gets, yeah. the better it is. <laughs> yeah. Or at least the more fun it is. Not necessarily better, mm. but yeah. more fun totally. to examine yeah. that plan. Definitely. Yeah, but um, regarding feedback and flamethrowers, that was the uh, segue <laughs> that I thought. <laughs> um, That's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. You have a new actual play right now mm-hmm. in we... uh, set in the Avatar universe, right? Yes. So yes. tell so... us, please tell us a bit about that. So this comes from Watsi's decision to try and burn the OGL and everything to the ground and in our three weeks of panic like everyone else was experiencing um we 
uh, we shifted our focus onto trying new systems because um, we have been primarily a D&D based podcast for, you know, the entire time we've been doing this. And we've done other little systems, but we wanted to really like test ourselves, see whether me as a GM, whether I could step out of my comfort zone and go for it. And the Avatar Legend system had just come out. Um, and I love Avatar The Last Airbender. I love Legend of Korra. I've read a lot of the comics and I'm a big, big fan of just the arc, the way that they portray, you know, adult themes through, you know, a child's TV show. I think there's just, there's a lot to me that is really, really well done there. And so when we were looking at it, we agreed that, you know, we were going to give it a try. I think for us, the the big thing that we realized was we wanted to tell a different story because Korra and Avatar, though they're incredible, felt to me sanitized in some ways and kind of like, uh, you know, they, they talk about awful things that happen in the history of the world, but they kind of gloss over some of what those people experienced and, and what went down. And so that's why we ended up making Avatar The Last Breath, which is our four-part series that we're doing. We're on episode three at the moment. Episode four will be coming out later this week uh, or, or when this airs will likely already be out. We wanted to keep it short and sweet. Each episode's like an hour um, with then we have a 30-minute debrief at the end, which we call our post-session clarity show, um, where we just talk about the episode talk about what went down and, and react to the moments and stuff like that. But we're telling the story of two airbending masters, um, one who lives at the Northern Temple, one who lives at the Eastern Temple. And we're telling the story of a, uh, a firebender refugee who lives at the Northern Air Temple as well. And we're telling a story of a wedding, uh, a gorgeous, gorgeous wedding um, that is, you know, a joyous day. And it just so happens that that day is the day that the Fire Nation attack. You know, disclaimers to people who want to watch it. Um, it is super heavy. We definitely deal with adult themes. You know, there's gruesome death. There is, you know, um, a lot of like serious emotions. Like our cast have cried every single episode. We have not had an episode where someone hasn't been in tears, myself included as a GM. Mm. You know, it's just such a crazy story. And we find that telling the story about these heroes that in the Avatar world are forgotten is just epic. Like yeah. it's so awesome. And everyone knows where it's leading as well, which I think just makes the anticipation and everything growing. And even for our cast, like it's yeah. just getting more and more real the closer we get to this last episode. I will say this outright. I love the Sky Realm, our, our main actual play, but I am so proud of this Avatar stream. So proud of it. Um, yeah, that's mm. that's that's a little bit about it. Um, <laughs> to talk a little bit about it, but yeah, super super proud. Mm, yeah, I, I think also just from from my perspective, as we've gone on, and I've experienced in my character role play what it feels like to be, you know, in my world, one of the all of us in in our own worlds are are probably the central character, right? And we have other people. We have other people that are certainly main characters in our world. Oftentimes through history, uh, people that have been very significant, been very heroic, been, you know, have incredible stories because of some ultimate end, their stories are just lost. And, you know, that that is something that we're trying to represent. I didn't really understand it until we got into this. And, mm. and you know, for us, it's so, you know, as the characters, it is everything. But in the story of Avatar, it's lost. Yeah, it's, it's, it's completely it's forgotten. Almost, yeah, so I, I really like that, you know, that juxtaposition. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting, right? Because the story has a purpose in, in the wider world of Avatar, which is a very important purpose. It's that these characters are the brave souls that protected the knowledge of where Avatar Aang is right now. Or Yes. And we all know where it leads through the series that uh, came out 
20 years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it isn't an insignificant story. And it, no. in, in the grand scheme of the Avatar world, it is forgotten. It is an insignificant, in quotation marks, story. Yeah. But with a very important purpose and goal. Yeah. And that's said that that's a great setup for characters. And I especially think that Avatar Legends as a system lends itself to that so freaking well. You're, you're right in lots of ways. I think what, what the system also allowed me to do, because their beautiful book comes with so much information about the time periods that you can mm. play in and, you know, talks about the avatars and like what's going on. And so our story is set, right? It, this is the inciting incident of the Hundred Year War. We're not actually in Roku's era and we're not mm. actually in the Hundred Year War area. We're on the line where we're telling mm. this story. And I think I really loved learning about the two eras and seeing, you know, like what the that transition was like, you know, you had airbenders in the Roku era actually in the Fire Nation with schools, you know, versus, you know, doing outreach programs versus, you know, then the Hundred Year War, there aren't airbenders and shit's an absolute mess. And, you know, across the whole, the whole world. And so I think for me, it was, yeah, the system really lended itself beautifully. And I think one of the things, like I said, about the amount of content that they put in that book, it actually allowed me to build in one of my favorite parts of our story, which is the amount of stuff that I've linked to the shows. So if you watch our, our story, you'll know that Tracy's character, Sister Devna, her last name is Sister Devna Beifong. So she actually is a, you know, long relative of Toph Beifong, you know, the person who teaches Aang how to earthbend. And so we're, we're trying to create these links because of what they've given us in the book. The information allowed me to create, you know, Beifong lineage. It allowed me to uh, link, you know, generals and things like that. It allowed me to link monkey Yatsu into it, you know, Avatar, Aang's, you know, um, personal master and like father and stuff. So specific locations, specific locations. And like, also, you know, if you watch our show again, the history of what happened at each temple, um, I've inflated some bits and changed things, but you know that like the Eastern temple is where the final battle happened, where, you know, they stood the hardest ground, the airbenders. And so we've followed that plot and then added in our own like homebrew flavor to that. And I think because of that, it's really nice. The one thing I will say about the system, and I, I know you probably want to talk about this, is how much it's allowed us to tell a story and not play a game, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Like we, I think because we're trying to tell so much of a story, we're not rolling dice as much. And I feel like if we did this over a long campaign, we would be using a lot more of like the the skills and like specifically the um, role play based mechanics that come with, with the system. But at the moment, we just don't roll dice. The fact that it allows for such open role play um, and allows us to be like so open it, there's very few moments where i find us being like oh let's hit back to the to the rules and let's make sure that we're doing this check or that check even though there's little moments where we do that feels applicable but it just feels open compared to D where people are like oh i'm talking 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 inside check you know talking talking uh, like i'm over here doing a strength check you know it feels like constantly it's getting broken up where this just yeah. flows like but i want to talk about combat mechanics i'll let you talk first though Go for it. <laughs> i think i think to build on what you're saying it has allowed that flow has allowed us to ride more of an emotional wave in ways that other systems can be disruptive. And to be fair, I think the Avatar system could also be disruptive depending on how you decided to play it. Yeah. I really prefer a role play and I prefer, prefer being lost in a 
story and being carried through in a story. And of course, there are moments where dice are important. Otherwise, it's a movie, right? It's a scripted movie. Mm. That, I'm, I'm down with all of that. But I think Avatar, is, the, the way we've chosen to play the system is my preference. I haven't had an input on how you have decided to GM it, but mm. it has been very much the way that I prefer to play TTRPGs. I think I think that's the big thing is like the system, I, I would say this. So first of all, the combat can get crunchy. We've, we've experienced that already. The combat can get a little bit crunchy, even though it's meant to be very roleplay heavy because the mechanics and like the techniques and moves actually have like predestined outcomes mm -hmm. it means that you know what even though you're rolling a dice to see if things like happen the outcome is already like predestined in a certain way and then you have to make that fit the story now that's awesome and it's a really cool mechanic me personally as a gem i like the idea that i can have a, a scale of of op options if it succeeds and if it fails dependent on how i feel well the success was or bad the fail was and so i must admit there's times where i definitely stray a little bit from that as a gem but i have to say like it's a new mechanic that i'm like not used to so it might be you know me just being a little bit detached from it but i i have to say i like it it definitely gives it's a system that gives a lot more potential i feel than dungeons and dragons but that's that's just my mm. personal opinion on it yeah I, I feel powered by the apocalypse and especially the avatar legends yeah which has been made to fit the avatar world which as a world is very creative right yeah. it's very open it's very free you could say when you look at other fantasy worlds like lord of yeah. the rings which i feel like is a very hot take restrictive fantasy world right it's mm -hmm. very set in stone and the and, and the avatar world might also be somewhat set in stone right by what the series has showed us the comics showed us but for example right when you look at, at the different bending styles which mm -hmm. how they are inspired how different benders use their bending styles to get effects that they want right mm -hmm. not all firebenders bend fire the same way mm -hmm. and i think powered by the apocalypse as a system really works for that right because it's so creative it's dynamic it's supposed to be fiction first mm -hmm. tell the story and yeah. if ever there's a situation where you do not know what happens where you can't know what happens then you make a move yeah and then exactly. we will this then we will see what happens and if you fail a move there's still some some stuff that means okay you failed you you don't climb that wall mm -hmm. or you don't break that wall but there's some other thing here's an opening here's is something to work yeah. with. One of the things that, for example, that is my strife with like D&D &D or all these yeah. other traditional TTRPGs, more or less, that are roll a dice, see if something happens, and if not, if you roll too low, you don't. You don't, yeah. you don't succeed. Is okay, I hit a wall. What do I do now? I don't, I can't try again, right? I, I climbed. It didn't work. What do I do now? Yeah. And in these systems, you have this, okay, you climbed, you fell, but maybe there's something different. Here, work with something different. Here, have this different prompt for you to work with. And, and as you I said this uh, helped you guys in your storytelling. I want to ask, without you guys having to tease something hard, yeah. ju just the general direction, is maybe this the direction you guys want to go into further? Like, it's a four-part series. Yes. But are there more plans for more actual plays in that <laughs> same sort of vein? <laughs> Funny you should ask. That's a, that's, 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 that's a great question. I want to quickly just mention something that yeah. as you were talking, and just I'll circle back to that in a second. I think something that's awesome, and I'm not sure, people might not know this, but the only time 
time, bending in Avatar Legends has mechanics is in combat. Yeah. Otherwise, there, there are two mechanics that could be applied to it, but typically the bending is flavor for what you want to do. And it, it's how you do the things. Bending throughout the whole system is majority flavor based, which is freaking awesome. It means that, you know, you can imagine lighting a cigarette by sparking a flame on your thumb or could be, you know, a guy's a bit more weird. So he lights it on his toe and, you know, like it, it, can, you, it can be whatever you want to, you know. Our airbenders have used really clever ways yeah, to use airbending. Exactly. And things like that. So I think to me, that's that's a big thing about it. And uh, you mentioned, you know, like uh, I, I wanted to just uh, just bring this up something again that I, I love about it just because we are homie in the doom. We do MMA and TTRPG is when I watched Avatar and then I've researched it a shit ton and realized that all of the bending styles are styled after different Kung Fu styles. I was exceedingly disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> what I have done since then and for our series, you'll find our bending styles are actually styled after different martial arts that apply to what the styles are like in the TV show. So you'll find earth bending is like karate, wide stance, hard, clear, strict movements. You know, you have Muay Thai as a lot more arms up, throwing punches, you know, high kicks, you know, things like that. So I, because of our martial arts knowledge as well, we have adapted the, the bending to be a little bit more realistic with the styles that that, that are being done. So we, uh, we've definitely put that flavor in mm. as well. To answer your question about other streams, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, so what we will be doing going forward is, you know, to be honest with the people and we want to, like, we're trying to just, we've realized building connections with people is what we want to do and it's what we're here for. So we're trying to be as honest with it, the public is possible. And so at the moment, we're trying to work out how we can keep up this homie and the dude train for a long period of time by getting some sort of income that allows us to not have to work, you know, full-time or part-time jobs yeah. alongside doing this. And so for us, you know, we're going to be working on Kickstarters and a Patreon and things like that going forward. But the other side of that is the one thing we love so much is streaming. So we will be streaming in 2023 and through 2024, most likely. Mm. And what we we will be doing now is we will be trying different systems. We will be continuing to do stuff within Dungeons and Dragons. We have more stories to tell within Dungeons and Dragons, 100%. We've actually got a plot written for a, a like longer form D&D campaign that we'll likely do at some point. Um, also with our avatar characters, we're going to do a prequel series at some point showing these same characters, you know, many years ago when they first met each other and are a lot younger and we want to show, you know, a bit of that. More of a fun, lighthearted. Yeah, lighthearted, yeah. definitely. Where... Um, but actually the next one we're doing, which we're so excited about is our Orbital Blues campaign, we, which we will be doing very, very soon. This will be similar to Cowboy Bebop, very similar to, um, you know, any show where you're looking at one-off episodes that are centered around, probably we're going to do four episode arcs basically that are going to be centered around like one smaller plot that will then link to a larger plot that we're telling, uh, throughout that basically. That, that, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Oh oh hype now. <laughs> but yeah, so that will be telling the story of a, a group of new criminals that are trying to make enough money, get their shit pimped out enough so that they can take one of our HK faster than the speed of light travel portals to the Andromeda galaxy where utopian life is apparently in existence over there while our solar system is turning to a bunch of fucking shit. Also, like Cowboy Bebop, you know, the characters are, are very incomplete and there's probably several instances where the characters will maybe probably take two steps forward and one step back in their journey where you know they they will fuck things up eternally <laughs> on, on the path yeah. you know so it's going to be good fun yeah really looking forward to that and orbital blues we feel 
is possibly we've played it a couple of times now and we feel like it might be one of the best systems we've ever encountered mm. in our ttrpg careers like the balance between like tactical combat and then like high role play is ridiculous like mm. i don't know how they've done it so well it's it's beautiful it's mm. a beautiful system mm. so hyped for that but yes from then on be continuing to venture into new systems avatar legends as well as also orbital blues pathfinder mm. um cypher you know we're looking at a bunch of systems and we're looking to just tell stories that we feel need to be told nice. that's fine <laughs> <laughs> all right i am really hyped for orbital blues from you guys because it's a system I've been meaning to play for like one and a half years, mm. one year at this point. Oh, I, I just want to play because I think it's it's such beautifully done to exactly do what you guys just said. Very high tactical combat that you can really grind your teeth into, but at the same time have the flip side of the coin of just be these role play among the stars, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's just beautiful. Yeah, yeah but just, and just I, the setting about uh, of this is just. Or the setting possibilities are just amazing. Mm. Yeah. Like you yeah. just said, the Cowboy Bebop inspired setting-ish, yeah. it's, I love that. That's exactly what we're going for. And actually, the funny part is our story won't actually start in space. It's actually going to start on Earth <laughs> in more of a, like, a Last of Us zombie mutant wasteland that our, our characters are trying to transverse, actually, before they get into space, <laughs> <Yay>. actually. <laughs> Which will be kind of weird and interesting, but we're looking forward to it. I've got to say, I've just a shout-out. Shout to Mayday Roleplay mm. um, mm -hmm. and their Orbital Blue series, because they've done a They've done, I believe, two, and yeah. they are both so kick-ass. Eli, as a uh, GM, is incredible. She is the so cast good. are top-notch. Mm. Like the improv is just incredible. So if you want to know what Orbital Blues is like, like I recommend their their actual play, m like most out of the ones that I've seen. It's mm. crazy good. Everything made a roleplay touched so far. Be it Delta Green, D and D, Vampire the Masquerade, Orbital Blues. I've been dying to play it since they've shown me. Yeah. how cool these systems can be. Yeah. Yeah. Their players are very, very creative. Yeah. They're, they're very talented. Very, very good. Yeah. Yeah, so, we need <laughs> to talk about Kickstarter. Exactly. <laughs> Let's go for it. Yeah, you have a Kickstarter running right now, mm -hmm. the Sky Sephiroth. Am I correct yes. in that? Yes, 100%. So what is this Sky Sephiroth Kickstarter about? Well, the, the, the tagline is swashbuckling combat, whether it's airships, spaceships, naval vessels, or land vehicles. But having that sense if you can picture you know i picture kind of almost like a pirates of the caribbean you know bold characters and dynamic strategic moves with vehicles and and we wanted to make it as su fun simple and dynamic as possible we also are aware that you know if you introduce vehicles into combat in dnd sometimes they can overwhelm traditional 5e combats we really wanted it to make it complementary to 5e combat so that people could feel like they had real control over outputs of the ship but also of their own combat choices as well. They're not losing anything from combat. If anything, mm. they're gaining something yeah. from combat. To, to break it down, Sky Zephyrs is a uh, currently a 5th edition over, rules overlay, mechanics overlay can be applied to currently the rules that we have written are to sky-based combat for like airships. Um, however, with minor tweaks, it can be adjusted for space combat and we will be releasing a space combat section. Um, it can be adjusted for naval combat and sub-naval combat as well as then all 
also terrain and like land-based combat as well. What we basically, the, the reason this came about is because in my world, the Sky Realm is set in floating islands. We, you know, we spoke to you guys about it last time and the system was like, shit, I don't have a way to do sky combat. I don't know mm. how to do, how, how do we do this? And I, you know, I looked at what we had for Ghosts of Salt Marsh and, you know, since Spelljammers come out um, and things like that. But there still just feels like a lack of making this for players, making this gritty, fun, like you are there on the ship having to contend with things breaking as well as you commanding crew and also then trying to get yourself in a good position and all that kind of stuff. So what we then went into was working out a way that we could make three-dimensional movement, uh, beautiful turn-based combat that allowed for unpredictability and means that you're basically playing chess against your enemies in the sky. On top of that, we wanted to give players the ability to interact with their ship, interact with the crew that they might hire to be on their ship, as well as also then be able to interact with enemies on enemy ships. And so we went about building that system mm. from there on out. So that's the kind of basic context. Bode's but there's been, lots of elements to yeah, it. Bode's, <laughs> elements. Bode's been working on it with our writing partner, Tony, who's actually based uh, in the States. I guess you guys are pretty complimentary as well in how you mm. have created it. But this has been a pretty much a year-long project. It started in May of last year, really. Yeah. And uh, so different elements of artwork, of the system itself, the evolution of the system, internal playtesting, and then starting to mold all of this towards a Kickstarter, getting an audience, assessing who the audience might be, trying to bring those people into some of our platforms so that they can, you know, they can either participate in the feedback as we're creating it and getting it to a place where now we're comfortable putting it up as a Kickstarter, but also can enjoy it afterwards as well. Mm -hmm. So it's been a it's been a multifaceted approach, the creation, the marketing, and eventually, you know, out to the the Kickstarter right now. That sounds great. I love it already because as Bodhi said, I, I also looked at the Ghost of Salt Marsh, Spelljammer stuff, even the Infernal War Machines of Descent into Avernus and yep. all the vehicles in D&D is not designed for vehicles at all. No. And, and they, they just put in some rules so that the people that ask for rules don't ask for rules anymore. But they mm. don't actually really care about these. There, There's not much thought put into it. Mm -hmm. It's simple and so that you can just go to basically get to the next encounter that is on dry land mm -hmm. on the 2D map. And that 2D is exactly what I want to talk about. Because as you said, it's about skyship combat mm -hmm. first. Yeah. That's That was the idea behind it. And when I think of skyship combat, the first thing I think about, and don't get this, don't get me wrong, is some kind of existential dread about it because I have to run combat in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. That can become tedious, problematic and hard to keep track of. This is obviously one of the focus points I think for you guys because you guys like combat, you guys yeah. like martial arts. So walk me through how you dealt with this, not, not problem but with the challenge of three dimensional combat specifically and yeah. how that generally will work. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you guys, as, as we are coming back as your first guest this is the first place that I am openly speaking about these rules, just so you know. And I'm I'm giving you guys the like behind the curtain look because we're now ready to start really pushing this bad boy and, and you guys are going to get the, the real stuff. So the way we've done this to simplify this is one, GMs will have access to a GM cheat sheet, which will have broken down rules and things that you can access easily. On top of that, we will be creating a GM and player tracker for their ships and uh, for, for multiple ships. So what you will have is you will have something that you could laminate or a PDF that you could have on a screen that will be interactive and it will allow you to check boxes, change numbers, um, write in all 
the stuff before the game and all that kind of stuff. I want more of that for most Kickstarters, most oh, yeah. D&D supplements, because that is the best jamming resource I need. Oftentimes I have to make them myself. Yes, mm -hmm. that's, that is exactly what I found. Like I have a shitty laminated one that took me like an hour to make for when I do like D&D uh, combat that I still use to this day. Um, and it, it, it's, it's great, you know? And so I wanted to create something that allows GMs to be able to track multiple ships, know what their health is at, you know, know where um, they are on the map and things like that. So that's the first thing that you will have in terms of tracking, solving the tracking issue. Now, the beautiful thing is about this, the only things that you have to track that change from standard 2D 5E combat is you have to know what zone your players are in. So what we do is we have what we call air zones for this. However, you could create space zones, you could create uh, water zones, you could have just a single zone for land-based combat if you wanted to. You could also have all of that in one map if you wanted to go <laughs> into upper atmosphere, sky, down to water, and then below water if you wanted to be crazy. Um, but the, the idea is basically you know what zone your players are in. So it, there is a maneuver that allows ships to move up and down different zones, basically. So all you need to know is the zone and then from there standard 2d ranges apply the only thing that happens is we modify the attack rolls ever so slightly dependent on how many zones you are away from each other giving you a realistic uh either bonus or um or negative to how many zones you are away based on you know like arrows dipping off and you know that kind of you know momentum things like that so all you will be tracking is like say you guys are 50 feet away from each other but you're on the same zone amazing then you're just doing 50 feet of range from each other. If you're on one zone up and above, then you're doing 50 feet away from each other. Range still applies, but you're taking a minus two to your attack roll. So on so forth as you get further away from each other, basically. And that is how we simplify it. Still same 2D mapping, but you just track the zones, meaning that you're now playing the chess game of, am I above you? Am I below you? Am I on the same level of you? Nice. Great. <laughs> Simple, yes. but effective. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't need to keep much track of anything anymore as a game master. I have already enough to keep track of, yeah. so not much added, but it gives that extra bit of decision-making for my players, right? Yes. Do we go above, below, or do we try to stay at the same level as them? What do they do? How do we react? Not to mention as well, each zone as we have written it and we recommend to GMs, each zone should have a different effect on a ship and could also have different wind directions. If you want to get into that, we've added a wind mechanic that means that you can deal with, you know, wind against you, wind for you, you know, uh, a storm, you know, all that kind of stuff in different zones. But zones can have effects. So for example, you know, if you fly into what we call the wind shear zone, it's very high altitude. So your players are starting to make constitution checks to see if whether they can, you know, stay conscious up here at this altitude due to low oxygen. You're also dealing with storms a lot more up here because it's a lot more dangerous. The wind is a lot more fraught and it can be very cold. So do we go up into a zone that could be more dangerous for us and get away from these guys and possibly lose them in a storm? Or do we go down into a zone where we know the wind is going to be with us and it's going to give us a faster speed to get away from them? So it becomes then knowing your airspace that you guys are in as well. The other thing that I, I love about it because when we've play tested it, I've just always wanted it to be strategic. And Bodhi mentioned it's like playing 3D chess, sort of. So how do you make it so strategic so that neither the players nor the DM know exactly what's going to happen in the next round? So we've created a mechanism. I mean, the game can choose it or not. They can choose 
choose to be uh, as as uh, prescriptive about having a story that they want it to go in a certain direction, or they can choose another option, which is neither of us know what this next round's movement will be. So the players have an opportunity to capture or to consult and to capture what they're going to do with their ship. The DM also has an opportunity to do the same with, and then it is shared at the same time. The cards are laid down at the same time. The adjustments are made, whether they're closer, maybe, whether they have to ram each other, whether they've separated. One's got in front of the other, one's gotten behind the other. And it just adds that element of real strategic, you know, kind of play where it introduces the unknown, which I love, yeah. absolutely love about mm-hmm. it. So so basically it allows, it, the, the initiative order, just for you guys to understand, would be something along the lines of, and we have the actual initiative order in the book, but it's essentially you allow the players to run through their initiative order. If one of those players decides to go to the helm and use the helm, then basically it adjusts the movement of the ship. All ship movement happens at the end of the round. So if GMs and players wish to, they can conceal what the movement's going to be and then it really becomes like Mm. chess because it moves at the end of the round and you have no idea. That means you two could fly into each other by pure accident. It means you could be getting close further and it becomes even more strategic at that point. However, as a GM, also you can, you could conceal yours and know the players, you know, however you want to do it. Movement happens at the end of the round, reset back to the players doing their things and then the movement is simply dependent on whether someone's at the helm doing something. No one's at the helm, there's no movement. 10 minutes in with you guys talking about this, plus the stuff that I've researched Mm. before, and my brain has already agreed to fuck everything. After (laughs) this comes out, you have to run a campaign with this. Hell yeah. With the center point (laughs) being airships. Hell yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. That would be sick. I would love to see you guys do that as well, uh, (laughs) because I feel like you would bring bring the dynamics to it and and the level of deep thinking with it that I think we'd be looking for from people, for sure. We, We have also made it almost adjustable for DMs preferences. So some DMs, yeah. So if you, if you picture almost like dials for different elements of crunch, if a DM decides that they really want it to be more RP focused, then you can, you can really like level it out out stuff. You can strip out like bits that you don't want, bits that you don't like, you can get rid of. The other thing is you could also dial it up. Like I said, you could have a hundred zones. You could give ships like ridiculous amounts of speed points that they can then spend on maneuvers and momentum and things like that to, to do their movement per turn. It's all the one of the bigger things that we want in the book is customizable. We want people to understand mm-hmm. you can use everything or you could use one thing from this book and we're happy that you you know that you found something here to help your sky-based or vehicle-based combat basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Just adding small little more or less simple dynamics or simple rules that just add to a if you use all of them add to a more way more complex situation in general yeah. and lead to way more strategic strategic combat or can be as simple as you want. I love that. Just yeah. the customizability. And one thing that you talked about earlier is um, shouting commands to your crew. Yes. Because what I have experienced in naval combat in D&D, mm-hmm. using your crew or interacting with your crew can be difficult or not worth as much or mm-hmm. feels lackluster in some way. Yeah. But you mentioned that you wanted more crew interaction with the crew and the players. How did you achieve that? 100%. And the crew was, the crew is kind of like my baby. I spent probably like half a month trying to work out how we were going to do crews and getting like get talking to our community was I want to say this like quickly as well because this process was massively influenced by our community I talked to our community loads about what they wanted from an air crew what they were looking for you know what what they kind of like 
liked and haven't liked about other things. And so shout out to our community for aiding me massively on getting to a place where I feel like we've really dialed in crew stuff for this. So the crew system that we have is basically you can hire um, one crew member, you can hire as many crew members as your uh, as your ship can basically handle. Um, and with the with the crew members, you have the ability. Uh, so each crew member will get a level uh, dependent on whether you want all of them to be at the same level, easiest option, or you could have each individual crew member as different levels. So we have um, novice like, and that's basically you've picked up like a peasant from the street to come and man your crew. We've got like initiate, which is basically you know they're you know someone who's been on a ship for you know a couple of weeks. They're getting the hang of things, still a little bit like. And then we have um, you know the masters and the experts basically, which are you have people who have been working on ships for a long time. They've survived numerous combat encounters, you know, and they're badasses. Same with experts, and you know that gives the crew members more uh, abilities if they do get into one-to-one -one combat. Too complicated with initiative. What we have done is basically you can now give your air crew commands, and what we kind of have it is the air crew is kind of in the background, assumed to be continuing basic operational parts of the ship when you aren't giving them commands. So in the background, they're passing ammo to one of the players. They are, you know, uh, making sure that you know the engine is working right downstairs. You know, they're stood next to the uh, the person at the helm. You know, possibly giving navigation. You know, all this kind of stuff. Any pulling ropes. You know, to make sure that the balloon is staying tight. You know, whatever it might be. But the crew are in the background. Then you can activate crew members typically as a bonus action on your turn um, to go and do specific tasks around the ship. Um, I will actually give you a little insight into the basic, the general air crew commands that every player has access to. Now, the cool thing is when you take some of our special feats that are a big part of the system, um, you get special air crew commands that you can then task people to do uh, specific things or, or more niche, niche or magical things. You know, it, it can be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more specific. But to give you an idea, um, you can get an air crew to retrieve or give you an item uh, or give someone else an item. You can get them to reload a confrontation station. Uh, you can get them to take cover. You can get them to abandon the Zephyr. You can get them to do an intimidating cry. Each of those then have things that, you know, then apply to either the ship or, you know, you're making people do checks, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, that's the basic stuff that you can do to command the air crew to then activate in the background. The aircrew are also a resource. If you don't have enough of them for the command to be done, then you're not going to be able to give that command. So while your ship is taking damage, you also lose aircrew. So if there's any AOE effect, if your ship's overall HP drops below certain thresholds, then you lose your aircrew and your aircrew start dying. Not to mention, if your aircrew start dying and you don't survive a combat encounter and things like that, there is a morale system that we have in place if you would like to include that for whether your aircrew are on your side, whether they're listening to commands, whether, you know, mutiny is even happening, things like that, you know. So there is a lot of depth within this aircrew system that allows you to be able to do commands, be able to look after them. But also, if you want to, you can just have them in the background. That's totally fine. And again, those special commands are something we're super, super excited about, you know, allowing, uh, for example, there is the border feat, which is basically you're someone who is proficient in, you know, going onto enemy ships and attacking and then getting back. That person person can actually command some aircrew to come with them onto the enemy ship and then fight on the enemy ship. 
you know, things like that. A necromancer can, uh, you know, a wizard with the, the necromancer subclass is actually able to use their aircrew's lives as a resource to then heal their team. If they want to kill off aircrew to heal their team, that's a special command that you can give, which is come here, I'm taking you, buddy. And that's, <laughs> and that's how it goes. So that's, that's what we're kind of talking about with the special commands later down the line. You can do group prayer as a cleric to hopefully protect your ship and create a, a shield. Get your crew to pray with you you know that kind of thing. that's once again just amazing the crew's in the background doing the stuff to maintain the ship while the players are in the foreground doing the yeah. important parts of the story fighting the enemies commanding the ship yeah. and the crew and the ship are in the background yeah and then the foreground players influence it in whatever way they see fit they make the decisions they create whatever opportunities happen yeah and the crew just does as they're told or stays in the background and supports basically yeah. so the players can still feel right because this is kind of one of the reasons why we play ttrpgs as players yeah. right we want our characters to not necessarily be heroes but we want them to be in the foreground we want them to be cool epic this system just apparently as you guys said so far supports players being the epic heroes on skyships <laughs> yeah and you know we we wanted it to be because we've seen other systems where it's like cool and we do have the option i'll, I'll say this mm -hmm. there is an option for an individual there is individual stat blocks for npc air crew so if you want to be a crazy person and do every initiative and run your entire <laughs> air crew through initiative order and have them doing stuff that is okay you can definitely do that and we have that ability for it. if you love crunch that much then we have that ability mm -hmm. but what we wanted to do was make it like you said it's a resource it's something that is just something else on the ship that the players have mm -hmm. access to using basically and it adds again a level of strategy and and, and thought of going cool am i say strategic strategic and uh and and thought it, it basically puts you in a place of like cool Now, am I going to use one of the parts or stations of the ship? Am I going to be doing movement for the ship? Or am I going to be getting air crew to do stuff? Or should I be looking at my own shit and doing some of that? It just opens up the board of opportunities that you have as a player now when you're mm. in the sky. It means that it's not just, you know, you're a barbarian and you're raging at a ship that's 50 feet away from you and you can't do anything. <laughs> now, as a barbarian with the boarding crew, you can charge across with your buddies. You can use the, uh, the catapult, the person catapult that we have as a station on our ship to launch yourself over there and, you know, cause some mm. chaos. So that's a big part of it. You know, the players come first in this and I think mm -hmm. that's super, super important. Mm. But the, the ship feels part of the team. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. The more I hear about this, the more I want it now. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's yeah. insane because I, I love naval combat or in general ship combat. I love the uh, playing it. I love watching it in movies and mm. whatever. In a session that is coming up today, we are kind of preparing for ship combat and now I'm <laughs> We're hyped and can't wait to use this Kickstarter that you that you guys did in my well, games. I, I can't just can't wait. I will definitely get that. We haven't told you. I mean, we've we've been kind of public in different ways, but I don't know how many times um, we have spoken about it. This may be the first time we'll talk about it this publicly. Is the, this is the first time publicly that we've both verbally spoken about. It. We've, we we made an announcement, which Emil, I'm sure you've probably read in the server. But the, um, the the thing that we're most excited about, and we think that yeah, a lot of the community will be excited about, is a mechanism for you to build your own ships. And Hell so yeah. yeah, 
and uh, there's several elements to it. Yeah, there's there's the basic element, which is in the books, you will have a list of a bunch of parts that we have made example ships out of in the book. You will then also have many other parts that if you wished to use that you could do. We then also have basic rules for what each ship size can have. You know, uh, we also have a, you know, a system where each part will be monetized. And if you want to do a budget for your players and be like, cool, I'm going to give you 500 coins, build your ship from the start, and then we'll go from there, you know, however you wanted to do it. So you could use the book and build it from the book and then, you know, create a stat block yourself. But the bigger thing that we're doing is we are actually creating a website app that will be a vehicle builder. This will allow you to select individual parts and things um, in the builder based on the parameters of the size of, of whatever vehicle you're building. Um, and at the end of it, it will spit out a bill for how much it costs to build it. And then it will also spit out a PDF of the stat block for you ready to go so that you can then have that ready to go. Now, we will just be starting with Sky Zephyrs and, and, and Sky Ships. However, we want to expand it to spaceships, tanks and land-based vehicles, uh, naval vessels and submarines, and eventually have community-designed uh, expansions and things like that that, that will exist. But it, that takes it to the next level. Now you yeah. can, now yeah. if your team are all rogues and you want to have a super stealthy ship, cool, you're choosing the mirrored hull that allows for camouflage in the sky. You know, you're looking at a low profile balloon so that it can't be seen. You might want quiet fans, you know, like all, and you start building it based on that. And it allows you to then take all the pieces mm. you want. And all those pieces will then give you the HP of the ship. It, the size will give you the speed of your ship. You know, all this kind of stuff will be accumulated through you building it on this uh, on this website it's kind of a the the analogy is um hero, hero forge. forge you know how you can you can build your tokens on hero forge except in addition to building while you're building at the end you have the stat block it, it's ready to go it's locked and loaded so yeah. that's been taking a lot of our time and our attention in the background and we haven't really wanted to talk about it uh because we do think it is you know our our particular unique selling proposition for this for this kickstarter mm. so super psyched that super sounds psyched. amazing mm. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one thing that I, I, I basically before you guys talked about I was like okay I have a question like how hard is shipbuilding how how mm. hard is how how long does it take my players but right because my players like to do the tactical things they like to think mm. about their options but also when we're in a session they don't want to spend like an hour yeah. doing the thing mm. because they could also just spend that one hour doing something more interest, interesting for the plot or something but now with this builder it might be a lot easier easier to actually get to the ship that they want faster and get all the information that you want for it and not have to cross-reference several pages in a, in, a, in a PDF or something. That was the one thing, that was the <laughs> one thing that I could have thought of that I was like, okay, how are they going to face that challenge of the mm. world? And yeah. you guys addressed it even before I was able to think about it. Nice. Well, this is what, picture a, a website that you can go to and you can have a visual representation of parts. I'm picturing a party literally kind of in front of a screen and they're saying, you know, they're having a discussion about should it be, should we use these sails? Should we use this? What is the speed of this? And they're seeing the visual representation. And after they have selected all of those parts, the UI of the, of the program will build the ship for them, right? Yeah. So they'll have that representation. And then also everything that they've strategized about will be represented in the stat block. So, and we're going to make that as, you know, as user-friendly and as pretty as possible so that it's that experience experience in itself will yeah. be more fun than sifting through a bunch of paper and looking through, you know, trying to figure out numbers and stuff. Through DM, DMG's 
tables that you're then trying to like be like what, what, what challenge rating xp damage ratio should i be calculating you know, not we're not we're not doing that that, that we, we definitely want to steer away and like you said simplicity is a big one because you know if you want to make a you know a guy who builds airships and he's got a shop the beautiful thing emil is you can go cool i'm, I'm gonna limit you guys to these these th these parts now let's quickly look through those parts cool i'll quickly slap it into the ship builder your here's your stat block here's your bill go for it guys that's the money you now owe the guy if you want to bargain for it roll persuasion you know it's it, it's very much you know something we want to make easy and at some point you know we're talking about expansions like we said you know with other vehicles we're looking at you know after this kickstarter expanding this into pathfinder uh, allowing you to build for there cypher orbital blues you know build ships for each of these systems that do have you know uh, ships in them um, and then the final thing um, that we want to talk about with the shipbuilder as well i think and i think for third-party creators is a big one uh for you know homebrew dms as i know you guys um often like to do hopefully we'll create a third-party marketplace where people can create their own parts uh their own expansions their own whole ships that then are broken into parts for people to use that they can then sell on the marketplace and and make a bit of money off of as well and and we want to make it you know a community-led thing where you know people are then adding beautiful parts and incredible ships and crazy designs and whatnot so that then you can add those into your ships as well if you like them which i think would be great you know that end goal that just oh, makes me smile that just makes yeah. me smile it is an amazing end goal yeah. i have to say this and i also very much can see why at the beginning tom said that it's about that it's swashbuckling combat mm. in in the skyships right because for me swashbuckling at least when i look think of it in in a ttrpg sense i think of 7c which is yeah. the swashbuckling ttrpg and that ttrpg for me is about making these bold decisions that have these huge payoffs with crazy chaos and everything around it but you make the important decisions as players to make bold decisions you, you're encouraged to to do this thing you want to do for example one of my players when we played it was uh tied a rope to the to the top of the mast of the ship and just swung down and basically just in a circle just swung around the ship at the the whole combat trying to fight the incredible giant kraken that was attacking them <laughs> and like that's a bold choice it sounds crazy <laughs> on paper and it sounds crazy <laughs> when you see it, but it's exactly what swashbuckling is about for me it's such a yeah. bold move that pays off in the end yeah. and this system has these has all of these simple which is not to be a discriminating mm. uh, denominator decisions for you to make so you can get to these bold choices that do matter in yeah. using these ships do we fly up do we fly down do we try to crash into them do we go boarding what ship how do I use so the thing that we want to do in our combat later or in our confrontation later works best. Yep. Yeah. All of these decisions lead up to the one big bold thing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the path there is rather simple yep. but it's still deciding. It still has these important decisions you need to make but they all lead up to the big payoff and that's amazing. The reason this was created I hope people hear me when I say this. Don't get me wrong. We are at a place where we're like we, we need to you know with homie and the dude you know make some money so that we can keep this going but this came from my like heart and like my soul as a gm like this whole system and everything that we've built to make this easy and the hours that i put into this have been because i want to give back after seeing the fucking shit show that is Spelljammer. oh yeah the mess that is you know ghost of salt marsh and stuff i was just like i'm ready for this i'm ready for our community to have something and you know whether the community finds our product 
product and, and is able to use it. Nonetheless, like we want the community to understand that this is us trying to like write our like love song to you about, you know, this this new era of, of vehicle combat in Dungeons and Dragons that we're trying to create here. And, you know, simply, you know, you can alter this for, you know, land terrain by taking away the zones and just making it one zone. You still use our point, our speed point system and momentum system. That's right. Vehicles have momentum. Like, you know, it's <laughs> it, there's there's things like, you know, that that we really want to like just give back to the community and make sure that you guys know that we fucking love D&D. We love, you know, what we're doing and we hope that you guys love this this like overlay the system that we've created in a way that, you know, enhances your games. That as a GM, any other tool in your basket when you're ready and you need it, it's right there for you. Mm -hmm. And it's simple and easy to use. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. for example, right, if you have these if if you are on only land combat, right, you can still mm -hmm. use the zones just don't in altitude but into is it longitude then, right? Yeah. To to the side, right? You basically like in 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 these lanes on like track running or something, right? You yeah. and one the other one is in lane two. That it, also are love, zones love that you that. can work with, right? Yeah. Even if that's not necessarily the purpose design, because right, that's just me now thinking about it, right? This system gives me as a GM that's already yeah. without actually having read the thing. Yeah. Already, I have been thinking about okay, how can I apply this to different situations, right? How can I use the simple layout that they've provided me, the simple modular pieces that I can now just pull and put here yeah. and use to my advantage however I see fit. Yeah. Once again, and, that's perfect. <laughs> and I, I hope as GMs, like like for, for GMs, that is the biggest thing. And like we heard someone, we, we like wrote, we sent out a sample pages to mm -hmm. our group. And if you want our sample pages, they are on our Discord server. In these sample pages, we talked about the customization and someone was like, you know, it undermines your whole thing. Like it undermines like the all the, all the rules that you put in here. And like, I, I fully hear this person's point of view. And I just want to say one, I appreciate them sharing that with me. But I want everyone to know that th we will mention constantly throughout this book that customize this, change this. You know, you can change the level here. There's GM notes all the way through this bad boy that are going to be like, you can alter this to do this. You can alter that to do that. Try changing this to do this, you know? And I think my big thing is I realized as a GM early on, I don't use one book. Like, you know, you, you've got Tasha's Cauldron or you've got, you know, Xanathar's to name like famous ones that have, you know, options that you can like pull from. I have opened those books personally twice in my <laughs> DM career to pull out a random encounter table. And even then, like, I feel like that's very rarely used. So this to me is like, you pick and choose what you want. Customize it through and through. Take everything, take nothing, take something. Like, mm. I do not mind at all. But the the point is that it's there for you to use when you're ready. It's it's in your back pocket. I think the, the, the whole impetus behind that is every table has their preference. Yeah, exactly. And you every know, GM has a style that's their preference. Yeah, and how can we accommodate for that? So I feel like we have an, enough options in there to have the right flavor, the right type of play for whatever that preference is. If we're uh, role play heavy, then we can use it. If we're, we love numbers and we love crunching tactics, you know, for hours, you can use it. So that's that was kind of the impetus of it. And I'm uh, glad that you mentioned options and, for example, Tasha's or Xanathar's. You mentioned feats before. Yes. But are there any other character creation options like spells or subclasses or anything like that coming in that book? So in terms of subclasses, we, we like we've weighed this up a lot. Like we were like, oh, we could add, we, we could. But what we felt, and I think I'm not sure you guys will agree with this, but I'll throw this out there. What we thought was by adding a subclass, it means that, you know, for a lot of people, then, you know, they feel like that that subclass might have an advantage over other classes mm -hmm. in the sky-based combat. So we've lent into, yes, there will be a bunch 
bunch of new spells. There will be there's spells that are actually super specific to our world that we're including because this is written by two characters from our world. Um, this whole book is kind of like guide to Wild Mount or you know fucking guide to Ravenloft or you know how people are doing that. So we have a very similar concept. But yes, we have a bunch of spells. We have a bunch of new items that players can then use to like again enhance what they do as a player and things like that. But the big thing we lent into is the feats. Now the reason we chose feats was because it's something that a DM can give to a player at any time. A player mm -hmm. can take based on plot or based on leveling, dependent on, you know, where they're at in the game. Um, and we felt like also it could be something that as a GM you give out at the beginning. If this is, you know, if your crew are already established as a group of people who have an airship together and have been doing this for a while, you're probably going to know who the pilot is. You're probably going to know who the mechanic of the ship is. You're probably going to know, like, different yeah. roles on the ship. And with our feats, a lot of them can be classed as roles, but the beautiful thing about them is that you could take every feat and, and it could be one character. Every character could take all of the feats. So an example of feats that we have are, you know, the pilot feat. We have the artillery man, uh, ammunition artificer. Um, we have uh, medic healing, storm caller, arcane fuelman, cuisiner. The navigator can try and predict what's going on in the zone above and below them. You know, the pilot can try and guess what the other ship is going to try and do as well as having, you know, speed reductions on some of the maneuvers and things like that. It just gives you this ability to then almost take a role on the ship, but also then adapt any player. You could be a barbarian with a pilot feat, a freaking, you could be a monk with a navigator feat. You know, you could be any of these, you know, things. And it means that you can then very much be any part of this team. You don't have to be the barbarian that boards the other crew. You could be a barbarian that actually uses his rage to get locked in and become an even better pilot. So that's where we've kind of gone with the adding like player stuff. So yes, loads of spells and, and a bunch of feats. We're going to have probably like 15, 20 feats. Amazing. Great. Perfect. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, we're reaching the end of today's episode, yeah. so I have one final question for you guys before yeah. we get to shouting out and and, and promoting uh, and yeah. links and stuff like that. This is your guys' first... Is it your first Kickstarter? Yeah. Yep. What is one thing that you learned that you didn't know before that you think other people that might do TTRPG Kickstarters, D&D Kickstarters yeah. would like to know? Something that maybe was not found in a book or something. Or You do one and I'll do one. You go That's first. perfect. I think give yourself a lot of time. Oh. <laughs> That's similar to what I was saying. And I mean, by a lot of time, I mean at least six months from the point in time when you say we have a product and we want to do a Kickstarter because there's so many things that go into it. Not the least of gaining an audience. So, you know, a lot of us think about Kickstarter and think, thinking, okay, well, I'm going to make a product, I'm going to put it on Kickstarter, and I'm going to cross my fingers and cross my toes, and everyone's going to find it, and it's going to be wildly successful. And it just doesn't work that way. We've talked to a lot of people. We've seen really researched successful Kickstarters, people that have been mm -hmm. failed with their Kickstarters and then succeeded and have conversations mm -hmm. with them and can consider them valuable colleagues of ours in this journey. And so there are a lot of different elements to a Kickstarter, including marketing to mm -hmm. customers that will really, really appreciate the product, developing the product, and then thinking about things like, you know, advertising, thinking about, do you want to work any with any um, other partners along the way? 
Do you want to all the different costs so that no matter what, if you hit your goal, you are actually going to come out of the Kickstarter with a, a successful outcome, which doesn't always happen. If you do the numbers wrong, it could people, be a real people problem. People go bankrupt for you. from Kickstarter. Like I'm not. This mm-hmm. isn't really talked about in our community. Like Kickstarters can also kill people's careers. Like in this in this industry, like that's something that people need to be aware of. Kickstarters are a gamble. The way that they stop being a gamble is when you have everything ready beforehand in a way that means that, you know, walking into the Kickstarter, it's just a like, let's watch the numbers roll in kind of game. So I can, my thing is we fucked this. And I like, I want to outright say that we have struggled with this Kickstarter. We have been making terrible decisions and good decisions all the way through this. And it has been an awful journey. It has been absolutely awful. And <laughs> we have learned so much shit because it has been so like hard and learning from mistakes. I was gonna say, even at this point, we're like, we are still don't have the numbers that we're looking for for the Kickstarter. So we need to like push our, our, our start date back to make sure that we have the numbers there ready to go. So my piece of advice is this. One, like Tom said, give yourself enough time. But I'm talking about even before you have the concept to write this idea. So what I'm talking about is before you do your first big Kickstarter, because this is a big one for us, we're doing a book, we're doing, you know, an application, we're doing trackers, you know, we're doing a lot of elements to the Kickstarter. Do small PDF Kickstarters first. Do small ones that are, you know, maybe 100 pages maximum. Build up an audience of people who know your product, who want to come back. Build a, in the background, a newsletter or a Patreon in the background or a Discord server where all those people that you get on each Kickstarter, you're bringing back and you have a place where you can then contact them again for the next one because they're likely to want it. So my advice is you need a community before you do a big Kickstarter. You need to make sure you do not start trying to and do this Kickstarter before you have the numbers. Because trust me, that is the hardest thing is marketing it, making sure that there's interest in it and that people recognize your brand and are willing to, you know, part with money for one of your products. That's what it is at the end of the day. There has to be, you know, a level of confidence in what you do. There has to be a lot of things in place before you do that Kickstarter. So my advice is as well, take your time, start small, build up to being bigger and build your brand as you go. That is the best thing that you can do for then your first big Kickstarter, which will then be a massive success because you've put in that work beforehand. And we're going to try and still make it work. So (laughs) we'll be back in a few months on this podcast telling you how we're bankrupt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But seriously, like that's that's my piece is like, take your time. But yeah, Yeah. what I've always heard from Kickstarter people that have done Kickstarter successfully or unsuccessfully, the one thing that they all basically agree on, uh, as you said, is that there's some need to be discovered. If you're doing a Kickstarter without an audience beforehand, you are at the whim of the Kickstarter algorithm. And that one only cares about how much money do you make in the first hour, the first day. It doesn't give any other flying fuck about anything else. How quick is your Kickstarter rising? And if it's rising quick enough, then you get shown to other people that might be interested in it. But you cannot rely on that because so many factors. That's only the people that are on Kickstarter. Yeah. That's not even like the rest of the fucking internet. That's one website's algorithm. So if you go yeah. in blind, you're relying on one website that not that many people know about, if we're really honest. Like, Kickstarter is not like fucking Facebook. Do you know what no. I mean? It's not yeah. Netflix. We've 
seen breakdowns of, of distribution, of mm. donor distribution. And Kickstarter is a really important one. For you to get funded early so yeah. that you can get swept up into their algorithm is important. But when you look at the breakdown, it's, it's, it's not 50%. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not, not even, 25%. It's not even it's 10%. So if you don't have that other bit built in, if you're just counting on somehow crossing your fingers and letting, you know, sort of hitting a low goal so that you can fund immediately and then it'll all just go magically into the millions. It's not really how it works. You have to you have to build the rest of it around it. Yes, Kickstarter is important. And if, if you can fund in the first hour, the first day, that is probably to your benefit, hugely to your benefit. Yeah. But it isn't the only thing. If you're only depending on that, you're in trouble. Yeah, you're, 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 in, you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. yeah. So we have reached the end of the episode. Thank you guys for being here with us. Thanks Thank you guys for coming back and talking to us about this amazing Kickstarter. Promote yourself, uh, shout out any channels, any people that you wanted to say. Obviously, promote the Kickstarter again. Give us a quick elevator pitch at the end of the episode again so people can get hyped. Of course. Everything. Cool. First things first, people that don't know, you've been hearing our voices and we probably both sound like strapping middle-aged gentlemen who are you know, <laughs> buddies. No. Uh, Tom is actually my father, and uh, and I, I'm the son half of this team, and we're a father and son team. You can find us at Homie and the Dude on every social media platform. We're also Homie and the Dude on Twitch and YouTube. Uh, if you're interested to see us doing, you know, playing TTRPGs, that's the best places to find that. Then I would say um, check out our Avatar Legends: The Last Breath series. It's four parts. Each episode is about an hour and a half, super short and sweet. It tells an epic tale of heroes that are basically lost to time because they put up a fight against odds that just were not in their favor. And it is an absolutely epic story with amazing characters that we're super proud of. Outside of that, the other two things that we want to quickly mention before we do the Kickstarter is our Discord server. We, uh, since the fall of Twitter, have been trying to grow our Discord server as a new, safe, inclusive, diverse, uh, fun TTRPG space for people to come hang out, shoot the shit, share ideas, share art, um, and just generally make it a nice, you know, uh, safe community where, you know, people feel that we're not being, you know, fucked around by the by the man, basically, as, as well as also anyone else in the community. And we have over 700 people in there currently. So that's that's a fun place to, to check out. As well as that, we have our newsletter of holding. Now, this is a free thing where you can go subscribe. Um, and then every two weeks or so, we basically release the newsletter, which updates you on any products that we have um, up and coming any projects that we will be working on or are currently working on. And finally, um, you also get free TTRPG supplements from us. So if you like the stuff that we make, um, you get to get more of it from us completely free. So whether that's a, a badass NPC that we've made fully statted with art, a battle map that has some interesting nooks and crannies that you might not have thought about, um, or even just like an encounter or something like that. Um, we, we really do um, a lot of those. And that has over uh, 1,500 people subscribed to it at the moment as well. We'd love you to join um, our Kickstarter. And our Kickstarter uh, is called Sky Zephyrs. It is a 5E overlay system that will allow you to have three-dimensional swashbuckling sky and vehicle combat in your games. It allows you to expand what your players can do within that uh, scenario. It has a super in-depth movement and momentum system uh, that allows you to do basic maneuvers then with a lot of awesome movement output. Um, on top of that, we are working on 
a ship builder, which allows you to build, customize, and modify your very own airship and in the future, other vehicles as well. It will spit out a stat block at the end of it and takes just a few clicks to create every ship. We are so, so hyped about that. And there will be from the start, um, we will have two basic ships in there. However, within the first expansion that we release, which will include all the other parts from the book, you're looking at probably somewhere between 50 and 100 parts to make airships off the bat. Um, so we're super, super hyped about that. Um, the Kickstarter, uh, when this is released, I assume is live now. So go check it out. <laughs> go help us out. And uh, guys, this is our love song to you. So we hope you enjoy the ballad and we hope you listen to it on repeat, guys. That was nice. Right. Thank you. Thanks. That was really good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> analogy. Thank you guys so much yeah, for having you. us. You guys are fucking legends. We really, really appreciate you both absolutely massively. Also, guys, if you don't listen to Double DM or this is your first time listening to Double DM, you better make it a regular thing by subscribing and following that shit because you are going <laughs> to learn so much as a GM. You are going to advance massively, not to mention listening to amazing guests that have incredible insights as well. And these guys also do an action play series which is off the chain as well go check <laughs> them out because double dm fucking kick ass that's a lot All right. <laughs> <laughs> on both sides <laughs> wow thank you and thank you for being here and yeah with that thank you for listening and hear you on the next one bye bye thanks Later, guys, guys. Bye -bye. thank you very much